Welcome to WCW Monday Nitro, performing their new single, Crush 'em. Capital recording artist, Megadeth! Welcome to another episode of the Slam Fast Podcast, where we bring the premier rock concert pregame and experience from the parking lot to the podcasting airwaves. I'm Brad. So we went through a run of episodes where I had a special guest on, whether it was a member of the Slam Fest crew or just a member of the music podcasting community. So now this week you are stuck with only me. Going to talk about a show that I saw downtown Detroit. And the venue I had been to before and discussed it on episode 40, the Rat L.A. Guns episode. So I was back at the State Theater. And looking back on that episode, I didn't really talk much about that venue. So again, the State Theater, now known as the Fillmore Detroit, which was changed by Live Nation in the mid-2000s when they were going through a multi-extension of the quote-unquote Fillmore brand got a capacity of 2,900 people, and the theater was built in 1925 as a movie house. It's a Renaissance revival style of architecture, so real intricate, really cool inside design. Just an awesome, awesome theater. There's also a grand lobby area, and then in the theater itself, there's three levels uh, of seating. Again, the concerts that I've been to there, uh, floor level, uh, mostly GA. Then they've got like a mezzanine area with some seats. And again, that's kind of where the uh, one of the bars is. And then they've got a traditional balcony in there as well. So this episode is going to revolve around the Megadeth concert I saw on November 7th, 1999 at the State Theater in Detroit, Michigan. So I've talked about Megadeth before. Had my brother on the 1998 OzFest show that we saw and we went through Megadeth's catalog up through Cryptic Writings and ranked the albums based on the one-two punch uh, that each of them had so have have given a little bit of the spotlight to Megadeth so this is a couple years later they had released Risk in 1999 and I can remember when this show got announced and I, I don't one thing I don't remember is who opened um, this show. I thought it said on the ticket stub, but does not. And was doing some searching online and could not find who opened. Um, don't remember seeing them or paying too much attention uh, to whoever it was. But I was excited about this show and seeing them in a headlining slot because seeing them on Ozfest, you know, they were a couple tiers down from Ozzy. Uh, headlining that show so thought it'd be pretty cool to see them in a in a a headlining uh, slot and a small smaller more intimate uh, environment so I remember the day of that show and this is so bizarre but the show was on Sunday November 7th of 99 and when I was thinking about 
um, this show and what I was going to talk about, I can't believe that I remember watching the Detroit Lions and the St. Louis Rams. So that game was out in the Pontiac Silverdome. This was before Ford Field was, was built. So I think it was the late game that Sunday afternoon, and I watched it and then probably left at halftime, but remember listening to it on the drive down to Detroit. And what's funny about this game, so Detroit ended up winning this game 31-27, to but what's funny about it, and I, when I read it, going back and looking at the recap of the game, Detroit converted a 4th and 26th <laughs> in the 4th quarter on the game-winning drive and I think scored uh, with uh, seconds, under 10 seconds uh, to go in the game. So anyway, kind of funny just remembering that and kind of attaching it to this show. Of course, that was the St. Louis Rams that went on to win the, the Super Bowl that year and, and the Lions ended up going 8-8. Eight and eight. And of course, that was the year prior to the season that Barry Sanders unexpectedly retired so I ended up going to the show, ended up meeting uh, my friend Tom, who I was uh, working with uh, at the time. His brother uh, was was into this stuff, and I've talked about him before, but ended up meeting him down there to go to this show. And we, from my recollection was, again, it was general admission um, on the ticket, but I, I feel like we kind of hung out in the mezzanine area um, had some drinks and kind of watched the show from there for whatever reason. I don't think he uh, particularly wanted to go down on the floor, which is probably where I wanted to be. But since I met up with him and, and we, we uh, hung out there in the mezzanine and, and watched the show. So Megadeth's set list, Prince of Darkness, Holy Wars, Punishment Due, In My Darkest Hour, Reckoning Day, Hanger 18, Breadline, She-Wolf, Tulaman, Almost Honest, Use the Man, Crush'em, Trust, Sweating Bullets, Symphony of Destruction, and closed out the regular set with Peace Cells, Encore, Couple of Covers, Paranoid, and then Anarchy in the UK. So the breakdown of that set list, so Killing Is My Business, Zero Songs, Peace Cells, One Song, So Far So Good, Two Songs, Rust In Peace, Two Songs, Countdown To Extinction, Two Songs, Euthanasia, Two Songs, Hidden Treasures, One Song, Cryptic Writings, Four Songs, and the new album Risk, Three Songs. So kind of interesting to look at that set list so 17 songs you know i could could have done without the cover songs but i get it so looking at the set list what's really interesting and if you get rid of the covers you kind of uh, break the set list down to 15 songs of their their original songs but 10 of those 15 songs came from countdown to extinction moving forward which in my eyes, and again, talking about my history with Megadeth back on that OzFest episode, I preferred, I, I like some of the stuff on those first, uh, you know, three or four albums, but I preferred kind of more of the hard rock version of Megadeth more 
than the than the thrash stuff. So in my eyes, this was a great set list. Again, you know, two songs off of Countdown to Extinction and Youth in Asia, and then four songs off of Cryptic Writings, which I loved, and then three songs off of Risk, which we'll talk about a little bit later. So lineup, so Dave Mustaine, obviously, guitars, lead vocals, David Ellefson on bass, Marty Friedman on guitar, and then Jimmy DeGrasso on drums. And what's interesting, kind of looking back at the lineups and the lineup of the OzFest that we saw, so I'm not sure if this is the lineup I saw on OzFest 98, because Nick Menza may have been the drummer at the show that I saw on that OzFest, but he was having some knee issues during that Cryptic Writings tour, and what I read was they found a tumor halfway through the tour, and he ended up getting replaced by Jimmy DeGrasso, who ended up taking his job uh, eventually anyway. So again, I don't know <laughs> when that happened. My guess is, kind of looking at the OzFest tour dates, um, which our, our date was a little bit later in that tour, and I know they did some of their own touring uh, prior to that OzFest to promote cryptic writing. So my guess is we did not see Nick Menza and we had Jimmy DeGrasso on drums. So I'm going to say that this is the same lineup that I saw on the OzFest 98 show. So again, what I can remember from the show, I mean, they sounded great. The look was a little bit different. I mean, you had David Ellison with short hair and all they really had, I mean, I think there were, you know, speaker cabinets on, on the stage, but they had a backdrop and it was white and it said Megadeth in black. But the strangest thing is, is it wasn't the Megadeth logo, which doesn't make any sense to me because they have an awesome logo. And I don't know why they wouldn't have done something a little bit more um, than what that, that is. It's pretty pretty plain um, but again overall um, it was a great show it was fun to see them uh, in a headlining set and like I said uh, the, the set list was was catered um, for me and for a fan uh, that likes that stuff in the 90s um, a little bit more than the stuff in the 80s so again overall great great show now on to the band on the bill spotlight so as I mentioned back on that OzFest 98 episode, talked about each of their albums and the first two tracks on each of their albums up through Cryptic Writings and ended up ranking them, which was fun, something different to do. And I was trying to think, what could I do on this episode? Well, why not talk about a controversial album that they were supporting on the tour that I saw? So Megadeth's eighth studio album risk so aptly titled <laughs> because it was a risk in the direction that they were going musically so again released on august 31st of 1999 produced by dan huff and dave mustaine which was the same team that produced the previous album cryptic writings risk charted at number 16 but I could not find any sales certifications at all in the United States. So a couple of interesting things. First 
uh, Megadeth album to feature drummer Jimmy DeGrasso, and the last to feature Marty Friedman. So again, I can remember buying this on release day because, again, I loved Cryptic Writings, and I was looking forward to this album coming out. I remember going back to Nebraska at some point in the fall for a Nebraska football game, and I remember bringing this with me, and you know, the night before, Friday night before going out with, uh, I remember playing it for uh, my brother uh, and Mike uh, in Omaha, driving around, and and I can still remember them not thinking too much of track one, <laughs> which we'll get into in a second, but they did dig track two, and you know, so again, overall, this album gets gets panned, and I guess my question is, do people hate this because it doesn't sound like classic Megadeth, or do they hate it because they truly believe these are bad songs? So, you know, I want to talk about that a little bit, kind of in general, but obviously using this album as kind of the backdrop uh, you know, with this with this discussion, but you know, Mustaine was even quoted as saying at one point that if it wasn't released under the Megadeth name, it would have sold way more, which is an interesting comment. So we'll talk a little bit more about this album in a second, but again, in general, you know, I'm good with bands experimenting as long as it still includes some of the things that they are known for, you know, or you know, if a band is going down that path and the, the leader, the primary songwriter, is kind of taking them down that path, maybe it's a good idea to do a solo album instead of putting it out under the main band's name. Back on episode one, I remember talking about I like all kinds of music, and at the end of the day, I distinguish between good music and bad music. And the bands that I'm into, I don't mind if they cross genres from time to time or try something different, you know, some sort of growth is going on. I'm okay with that. And as a longtime KISS fan, maybe I've been conditioned a little bit to accept those those types of departures from, you know, what they're most known for, what they're you know, most popular stuff was. So, you know, getting back to Megadeth, I mean, they were on a path of, um, you know, getting more commercial, having having some more commercial success, and I think they wanted to push it uh, to the limit or at least give it a try and see see what would happen. You know, they... they uh, obviously tasted success with Countdown to Extinction and kind of continued to go down that path versus reverting back to um, their thrash roots and you know I think they were somewhat reacting to what was going on around them and seeing that that was successful and they were probably getting pushed by their record company to to do that but you know again in general you know you've got 
you've got the primary songwriters. I mean, they're maturing. They're, you know, wanting to get into different things. And, and again, I am totally cool with that happening. But what's interesting is as you look at Megadeth's discography, and I'm going to throw out Killing Is My Business because it, uh, um, you know, they didn't hit until Peace Cells came out. So Peace Cells went platinum, only charted at number 76. So far, so good. Went platinum, charted at number 28. So obviously some improvement there. Rest in Peace went platinum, charted at number 23. And then Countdown to Extinction went double platinum and charted at number two. And again, some would say that at that point, you know, they had started to go down that commercial path with Countdown to Extinction. So next up, Youth in Asia went platinum, charted at number four. So again, two top ten albums in a row. And then Cryptic Writings came out and actually only went gold and charted at number ten. So it's kind of interesting with the way that they went with Risk. You know, they their previous album, while it was a commercial success, they got a lot of uh, radio play, and but it only went gold. And again, things were changing with the music environment there at the uh, mid to late 90s, and you know it didn't chart quite as well as the previous two albums, but was still still successful. And so then they come out with Risk, and it charts at number 16, but fails to get certified at all. So let's get into the album a little bit. So again, I remember buying it on release day, put it in, and of course the first thing you hear is this Middle Eastern, you know, type intro, and you know, kind of a preview of the chorus of the song Insomnia with the insomnia, nia, 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 nia. Again, it's got kind of that industrial uh, sounding riff, but, you know, if you listen to it, it's actually pretty cool. And I think the verses are great. Lead guitar melody in there. The pre-chorus kind of gets mellow, and then it gets into the chorus with some great, great lyrics talking about somebody, turn out the lights, I can't sleep, I can't sleep, insomnia, and you know, verse two, awesome lyrics and delivery, and again, great solo and great underlying riff to that song. So, I mean, I was, I was grabbed right away with that with that first song, and was actually leading up to the concert. I was thinking that they were gonna start off with this song. Well, not only did they not start off with this song, but they didn't even play this song. Uh, in the set at all. It was actually the third single, but going back to my story of, of uh, going back to Nebraska for that uh, football game and and bringing this and playing it for, for Matt and Mike, again, they weren't <laughs> they weren't very impressed with that uh, with that song. So track two, which I mentioned they were impressed with, so Prince of Darkness, and they obviously started this show off with it. And again, it probably should have started the album uh, out as well. Again, a long, eerie intro, drums and bass and vocal with all of these lyrics of just absolute crazy, crazy stuff. Again, singing, <laughs> singing like you know, first person 
with regards to the Prince of Darkness, talking about my victims are rich or poor, young or old, strong or weak, I cause millions of accidents, I am more powerful than all the armies of the world, I am more violent than violence, which is interesting, more deadly than death, I have destroyed more men than all the nation's wars, I am relentless, unpredictable, waiting for your last breath, so scary <laughs> stuff overall but great song kicks into a great riff and again the verse you know more more of that first person uh you know type stuff into a chorus you know melodic underlying music in there but then kind of that breakdown between the first chorus and the second verse that heavy kind of thrash machine gun type drumming and, and the mustang growls and again they only do that part once at least you know as that as that breakdown i know they they do some of that you know uh underlying you know during the solo but surprised that they only uh only really did that part once but again great song and then you move on into enter the arena which again was just an intro uh, for Crush 'em, which was the first single, um, but Enter the Arena, the actual riff to that, um, to me sounds like Turn Me Loose by Loverboy. No! No! Again, as you can hear, all of the Megadeth fans just screaming as I'm comparing <laughs> a Megadeth song to Loverboy, but. Very cool, great intro. Should have just been added to the beginning of Crush Em. I'm not sure um, why they added a separate track. And then you get into Crush Em, and again, there was an obvious wrestling, and I even read that there was an NHL tie-in that they were trying to, you know, get this, you know, anthemic song, you know, played in in those types of sports arenas. And it was also in the Jean-Claude Van Damme movie, Universal Soldier. So again, some sound effects in there, you know, from the first two big hits off of Cryptic Writings, you know, kind of had that uh, weird sound effect uh, in trust and and almost honest, Um, but very cool. I mean, the bass line of of the song as it kind of starts there is almost almost has a disco feel to it, which, once again, Megadeth fans. No! No! But again, call and response, riff, kind of during the verse. Again, not Megadeth sounding at all. Uh, pre-chorus is, is very good and great music uh, during that part. And then the chorus, you know, you got gang vocals in there, which Megadeth hasn't uh, used a ton of, but it, it works here. And then Breakdown, again, kind of going back to Turn Me Loose <laughs> by Loverboy. No! But again, uh, you know, great, uh, great song for what it is, you know, but people would say just not a great Megadeth song. And that's fine. I mean, if you, if you want to say that, that's fine, but it is a Megadeth song, so deal with it. Next up, Breadline, which was the second single. Just a great, great song. To me, it sounds like a holdover from Cryptic Writings. Verse, mellow acoustic, uh, with a great vocal. 
pre-chorus again, great music. So again, these songs are well written and, and structured and arranged. And again, the chorus, very, very melodic, a great underlying riff in there uh, and some great uh, soloing kind of during the outro and then some, some great uh, Dave Mustaine interjections as that song uh, fades out. Next up, Doctor is Calling. So again, you got that beginning, you know, child's voice, Daddy the Doctor is Calling um, riff. You know, Doctor Hospital sound effects in there. A verse, melody, follows the riff, which again, I've talked about. I'm not a huge fan of that, and so it kind of hurts the verse there. Uh, chorus, you know, there's a tempo change in there, and I actually, I dig the chorus of this song. Uh, again, call and response vocals with the riff is cool again great solo uh, underlying riff during the solo is is very very cool as well so next up i'll be there so it kind of kicks off with a wall of noise and then goes into this mellow acoustic part and vocal cool melody though of, of both and again some great phrasing in there i think mustaine sounds really really good on this song the pre-chorus is really good but then the chorus, it, it's just, I don't know, it doesn't do much for me. Um, but the rest of the song, I think, is really good. And then there's a breakdown in there where you get some woes um, going on, which is actually pretty cool. I'm just, just not a fan of the actual chorus. And then during the outro, you got some Mustaine interjections uh, vocally in there, which I think is very, very cool. And then what I think might be the best song on the album, so Wanderlust, is just awesome. And I think I read somewhere where Mustaine uh, actually praises that song as well, um, which I can I can see why. So again, the verses are real mellow, and then I mean the music almost sounds almost has a Fleetwood Mac sound to it to me. But then the chorus is just great, great phrasing, almost has an Aussie era sabbath feel to me you know talking you know judgment day in there and then you know great solo and then some more some more woe woes uh in there which again is not really um a megadeth thing but to me with what they were doing here i think it works next up ecstasy so kind of drums bass kind of a mellow riff uh cool verse melody in there Chorus, again, great melody, great backing vocals. Uh, breakdown, uh, the solo, you know, it's kind of odd that uh, um, solo is way too low in the mix um, in this song, which is <laughs> which is a little bit odd um, to me, but uh, overall not a bad song. Next up is Seven. So again, cool riff, drums, lots of space in there which is good. Again, another great pre-chorus. But then the chorus is kind of, I don't know, doesn't do much. The, the vocal melody there kind of follows that riff a little bit too closely and not a fan. But the breakdown, great drumming, uh, kind of a, a cross between I Want You To Want Me and Ballroom Blitz, at least from a from a drumming standpoint, kind of coming, coming out of that, uh, coming out of that breakdown. So then to close out the album, he's got two songs called Time, one time the beginning and one time the end. So Time the Beginning is kind of a mellow acoustic 
vocal intro. It kicks in a little bit, but kind of continues that mellowness. And <laughs> overall, doesn't really go anywhere. I mean, if they wanted to attach this directly to the other song as an intro, that might have made more sense. So then time the end um, actually kind of kicks in. There's a cool riff in there, some great drum fills. But again, it, it kind of continues the theme of not really going anywhere. So maybe that's what he's talking about, you know, time kind of standing still and not not going anywhere. I'm not really sure what the, what those songs were were all about. But so, you know, there you go. 12 tracks on here. You know, I'm a fan of Insomnia, Prince of Darkness. Again, Enter the Arena is just an intro for Crush 'em. Fan of Crush 'em, Breadline, Doctor is Calling, Wanderlust, you know, the song Seven, you know, the song Ecstasy is decent. So, I mean, are there are there some clunkers in there? Yeah. Um, but again, overall, I, I, again, I think this, this album gets, gets absolutely crushed, you know, from the standpoint of Megadeth going in a, in a commercial direction. Well, you know what? They were going in a commercial direction since Countdown to Extinction. So I wouldn't blame that on this album, I think. Slowly but surely, they were they were moving in that direction and 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 getting you know that taste of of that commercial success and and kind of pushing the envelope as as far as they could go and it didn't work and they went back and and went kind of went back to their roots on the subsequent releases. But overall, I'm a fan of this album and as I mentioned before, I don't. I don't automatically discount anything by any of the bands that I enjoy if they choose to do something a little bit different and go in a different direction. I think everybody does that, and okay, I've got all the ACDC fans screaming, saying, well, ACDC doesn't do it. Well, yeah, they did. They got more commercial in the 80s, starting with Fly on the Wall. They ended up doing a soundtrack and, you know, that stuff, Who Made Who?, and even blow up your video. I mean, that stuff was all commercial. I mean, did it have the, you know, underlying riffs and and sound, you know, kind of like ACDC? Yes, it did. And then, I mean, then you get to the Razor's Edge, which, you know, was one of their more commercially successful albums. And you had a song on there, Money Talks, which was a pop song. So, <laughs> I mean... ACDC did it, but they were able to hold on, you know, to their their underlying sound um, and, and still capitalize on, on the commercial side of things. So now on to the slam fast tip of the week. So let's continue our discussion about Rockin' Pod 2021. This August will rock as Rockin' Pod returns to Nashville. This annual convention brings together rock artists, fans, and podcasters for an unforgettable rock experience. Meet Billy Sheehan, Ron Keel, Ricky Rackman, Mark Goodman, Matt Pinfield, Don Jameson of That Metal Show, drum legends Carmine Apice and Vinny Apice, along with current and former members of Winger, LA Guns, Except, Roxy Blue, and more panels, signing sessions, and vinyl and memorabilia vendors all available to you at Rockin' Pod. 
Music podcasters from all over North America will be appearing on site for live interviews, networking, and speaking sessions. Got a music podcast? Register and join us. Rockin' Pod Weekend kicks off with a pre-party concert featuring former Tesla guitarist Tommy Skeo and his new band Resist and Bite. Plus, Ron Keel Acoustic, Rock United, and a rare hair set featuring many surprise guests. Rockin' Pod Weekend, August 6th through the 8th in Nashville, Tennessee. Tickets, VIP, podcaster registration, and discounted hotel rooms are available now at rockandpod.com. Rockin' Pod, brought to you by DBG Productions, Bradley Entertainment, and Incaptia. So there was some news over the last uh, week or two. So they, you know, ended up doing a lottery with regards to some of the top uh, billed guests that were going to be at Rockin' Pod this year and, and the podcasts that showed interest in, in interviewing uh, some of those guests. So they ended up doing a lottery, which was, which was pretty cool. And they, they wanted each uh, podcast to assign a song to this playlist. That, that's the way that they were, you know, choosing. Um, they were, I think, going through a, a Spotify playlist and, and whatever song came up uh, that was associated with your podcast and you were, that was the drawing. So um, what song did we use? So I think it was a no-brainer on what song the Slam Fest podcast should use. So back on the 27th of June, they ended up doing this lottery, and the Slam Fest podcast landed an interview with Mark Goodman, one of the original MTV VJs. So that'll be so that'll be fun to to talk with him. And then we're still, I guess, waiting on word of, of some of the other. Guests. I mean, I've put in um, our name, you know, on a handful of others. Again, I don't want to spend the whole time interviewing people. You know, I want to be able to to mingle and network and and that type of thing. So I did. I've got. I've chosen some additional guests uh, to talk to that do have some tie-in, whether it's in a band that I've seen and already talked about, or a subsequent show concert that's going to come up on a future episode so we'll see we'll see where that goes so then they came out with the poster for the event so you've got rock and pot expo nashville tennessee august 7th uh, hilton nashville uh, airport and then special guests are listed first and then podcast shows are are listed and and we are on the second line from the top so again looking Looking forward to that. And then the other thing that came out recently was our our table uh, location. And so we are in the, I guess it's Hermitage Ballroom. And we are in a corner, basically, where, you know, there's nobody on our left. But on our right are our good friends over at the In Obscuria podcast. 
So Kevin and Robert, so looking forward to that. And on the other side of them, our friends at Podcast Rock City. So that'll be good. And then a couple down from there, you got A to Z Radio, Bill Elam and, and Ages of Rock uh, are around there as well. So that, uh, looking forward to that. And I'm also working on finalizing some swag that we're going to give away at the expo. I don't want to give anything away, but... You know, Slam Fest podcast. You guys kind of know the theme of the show, so use your imagination on, on what I'm going to have for everybody. So now to close out this episode with a Which Side Are You On? So I've only got one band to pull from <laughs> on this show, so I, you know, going through their their catalog up to this point trying to find what might be the best uh, side one versus side two so we're going with Megadeth's Youth in Asia released November 4th 1994 produced by Max Norman and Dave Mustaine charted at number four and went platinum so you know real quick my background with this album so again I remember the singles I again I remember Atula Mon, and you know, I remember the song Reckoning Day, and I guess I'm not positive where I where I would have heard it, but I did not own this right away. I ended up buying it, you know, in the early 2000s uh, on CD. I bought a bunch of uh, Megadeth CDs used um, in the early early 2000s, and this was this was one of them. So. Kicking off with side one, again, my brother and I talked about the first two songs on all of the Megadeth albums, up through Cryptic Writing, and again, Reckoning Day, just love, 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 one of my favorite Megadeth songs, the machine gun drumming, driving riff, great verse phrasing, uh, variation during the chorus, just, just a great chorus, just a great, great song. So track two, Train of Consequences, which my brother and I both kind of scratched our head at why this was track two. And if it would have been one of the other songs on here, you know, Euthanasia would have uh, probably rated uh, a little bit better in our rankings. But how in the world was this the first single (laughs) of this album? I have no idea why. Again... Good opening, broken riff, you know, kind of sounds like sounds like Megadeth. Good bridge, you know, classic Mustaine delivery during the chorus. Again, good song, just not just not my second favorite on the album, which it was why Euthanasia didn't didn't rank higher. Next up, Addicted to Chaos, cool drum intro, riff builds in volume and into a cool groove. Sounds like something again to me, and I couldn't, uh, could not place it. Uh, but great bridge, pre-chorus, uh, very, very cool. Chorus is great. Underlying lead melody sounds kind of Smashing Pumpkins-ish to me. Great delay on on the word chaos, and then great outro. Addicted delay on there, chaos delay on there. Again, sucker for delay, and and love that. Uh, Love that part of the song. Atula Mon, so again, single number two. Again, very commercial, very melodic. 
verse music is mellow that acoustic in there pre-chorus it starts to kick in and then of course the the chorus you know where they're uh where he's singing in french and you know translated to english to everyone to all my friends i love you i have to leave so again good song very melodic underlying lead melody is cool melodic solo harmonizing leads during the outro just again it's a great song so then later on that song was remade and reissued featuring christina scabia of lacuna coil on megadeth's 2007 album united abomination so again even more and more exposure and and more plays um but again great song just uh just a little bit overplayed for me Next up, Elysian Fields, sound effect intro and then kicks in, verse, great riff, pre-chorus, kind of ACDC-ish backing um, vocals in there, and the chorus, great backing vocals, very cool on Elysian Fields and then Dave's interjections, just great, great stuff. And then side one ends with the Killing Road, great riff, verse is good, chorus, lost my mind, lost all my money. I lost my mind to the killing road great underlying riff and and again a great solo so again overall you know you've got the the two singles train of consequences and and a tulaman on here and you know reckoning day i love and you know it, it the side ends with a couple of good uh deep cuts so then flip the album over so blood of heroes kicks off side two Mellow acoustic intro into another great riff, great verse phrasing, pre-chorus, melody and lyrics are great, chorus, backing vocals in the melody, call and response, doesn't do a ton for me, but do like the um, breakdown when, when it's just Dave during that song, but overall, I dig the song. Family Tree, great song, great intro, lead guitar melody, riff kicks in verse bass and drums then kicks in in the second half of that verse pre-chorus great lead fills in there which is just awesome chorus great backing vocals and melody and then outro lots going on vocally lots of dave interjections in there just very very cool next up the title cut euthanasia again cool song great intro into a cool groove verse chorus is a little bit repetitive Great vocal delivery on the euthanasia part, and again, tempo increase, you know, into the into the solo is is really good. Great song. I thought I knew it all. Awesome, awesome song. Great riff, great groove. Pre-chorus is really really good. Melody, delivery, lyrics. It's just it's just a great song. Chorus, you know, delay or is it you know call and response in there? Very very cool outro thought i you know he he repeats that uh as the song as the song ends next up black curtains cool song dark heavy riffage great verse delivery chorus black curtains you got some delay in there as well which is which is very very cool and then the side closes out with victory so the verse just starts right away as the song starts heavy uh, some spacing in there and lyrics you know it's past song titles Ch 
chorus, cool delivery, you know, the not even close, and an underlying riff, and then, and then just a great, great solo. So, you know, Blood of Heroes, Family Tree, Title Cut, I Thought I Knew It All, Black Curtains, uh, and, he, and then Victory closes it out. It's just, that's a solid, solid side. You know, so good looking at both sides, you know, again, Reckoning Day, one of my favorite songs uh, from Megadeth. Kicking off the album is great. Addicted to Chaos is great. Um, you know, but there are, I think those last two songs on there, those deep cuts, you know, they're good, but they're not great. And when I look at side two as a whole, I, I, I think there's more, I think there's more there with, you know, everything. I like all of those songs. So <laughs> even though the, the first side's got the singles and, and like I said, my favorite song, I think I'm going to go with side two over side one of Megadeth's 1994 release, Youth in Asia. Did any of you see Megadeth on the Risk Tour in 1999 or early 2000? If so, when and where and what were your thoughts, memories, or stories from that show? What are your thoughts on Megadeth's polarizing 8th studio album, Risk, from 1999? And last but not least, what are your thoughts on Megadeth's 6th studio album, Youth in Asia, from 1994? Side 1 or Side 2? Let us know your thoughts by emailing us at slamfest at gmail.com or request to join our private Facebook page at Slamfest Podcast. Thanks for listening. Until next time.